Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Professional AF is brought to you by SendPro Online. Are you paying too much to send out packages and letters? Wouldn't it be nice to have a solution that can give you the lowest rates? With SendPro Online, it's easy to save time and money no matter what you send, from packages to overnights and letters. I think all the time about how we just take for granted the fact that you can just package something up and there's like a whole service that just takes it to another place. So like you don't have to go, oh, I will bring this thing to you. Like people do that for you. Did you come prepared with some prose for today's ad reads? I don't have like a sonnet to <laughs> our mail carrier, but I, I I think about this all the time. This is And this has been around like since the Pony Express or whatever. I mean, it's kind of amazing. You know what's even more amazing? That with SendPro Online, <laughs> you can easily compare USPS, UPS, and FedEx rates all in one online tool. You also gain access to special USPS savings for letters and priority mail shipping. Print shipping labels and stamps right from your own printer. And track all your shipments and get email notifications when they've arrived. And we have access to SendPro Online for only $14.99 a month. Does also, that work? Also that. <laughs> And for being a professional AF listener, you can get a free 30-day trial to get started, plus a free 10-pound scale to help you accurately weigh your packages. Visit pb.com slash professional to access this special offer. Like the professional that you are. That's pb.com slash professional. Experience the better way to ship with a free trial of SendPro Online. Good day to you, my curiosity comrades. I am Diana Kander, and you are listening to Professional AF, a show that, according to the latest review on Apple Podcasts, uses hard science, sociology, pop culture, vulnerability through real-world anecdotes and a healthy dose of humor to give you the tools to become successful and professional AF. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you who have reviewed the show and shared it with somebody that you thought could benefit from the content or everybody in your office. That is actually my favorite kind of sharing. Today, you're in store for a real treat. This episode is the most meaningful to me of the season because of the impact that this content has had on my life and that of my husband, Jason. I imagine this is going to be the show that I recommend to the most people because it applies to both men and women equally, and it explains the most important skill set that you can develop to enjoy your life, self-compassion. Self-compassion is the simple art of being kind to yourself in moments of despair the way that you would for a good friend. But most of us are much kinder to our good friends than we are to ourselves. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kristen Neff, the top researcher for self-compassion in the world. Kristen is going to help us understand how self-compassion can help you reduce anxiety, stress, negative head trash, and significantly increase your achievements. Why we're kinder to our good friends than we are to ourselves. Why self-criticism is not a good way to motivate ourselves and push ourselves to be better. Why self-esteem is a fair-weather fan and always turns on us when we need it most. And she's going to help answer the big myths of self-compassion, that self-compassion is a form of self-pity, 
that it means weakness, that self-compassion is going to make you complacent, and that self-compassion is selfish. Self-compassion has had a profound impact on the way my husband Jason and I live our lives, and I hope that you're going to give it a try after listening to this very special episode of Professional AF. Kristen, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, This is a very personal interview for me because self-compassion has been playing a very important role in my house for the last six months. So six months ago, my husband started getting treatment for PTSD 12 years after coming home from Afghanistan. And self-compassion is one of the key focuses of the treatment that he's been getting at the VA. So we've been talking about it a lot. And for me personally, I came to know your work about four years ago when I too finally realized that I was struggling. So it is an absolute Mm -hmm. honor to get to speak to you in person and share this powerful practice with our listeners. Uh, Yes, thank you. I'm I'm so glad that um, this this has kind of infiltrated in the VA, and I'm so glad to hear a personal story of it it helping someone like that. I bet you get to hear those stories all the time, and um, that's, that's just incredible. Yeah, it is pretty mind blowing. I must say, I'm very, I'm very grateful and blessed in the work I do to be able to make a difference. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I want to start with that part, the part where you realize that you're struggling, because I think mm-hmm. that's one of the key things that I've learned from rereading your book is that most people yeah. are not aware of what's happening to make them feel sad or inadequate or anxious or filled with shame or frustrated or angry, that a lot of these things happen because we are so hard on ourselves. And, and you do a really good job of explaining why so many people are so much nicer to everybody around them than they are to themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the part about being aware, so, so the way I kind of find self-compassion is there's three elements and all three need to be there for it to be a healthy state of mind. And the first really is mindfulness. I mean, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness these days and mindfulness is really the core of self-compassion. In other words, you need to be aware in your suffering in order to give yourself support. But for instance, if you couldn't be a good friend to your friend if your friend doesn't tell you what's up with them, right? But the first thing that you have to be able to do to, to help your friend or be compassionate to your friend is they need to say, hey, I'm struggling. And believe it or not, we need to do that with ourselves. And what happens is either typically we're, we're so focused on problem solving or maybe avoiding the problem, pretending it's not there, that we can't actually step outside of ourselves and say, hey, I'm having a hard time. I need a little bit of help here. And so really that, that's the first step that has to happen is just the awareness piece. Uh, and then, as you say, we need to be able to respond with kindness and support and encouragement, warmth, the way we would to a good friend. Unfortunately, one of the reasons we don't do that is, you know, if your friend's going through a really hard time, you can feel for them, but you, you typically you don't feel personally threatened by your friend's situation. Now, your partner, you might be personally threatened by and. And by the way, we're a little less compassionate to our partners than we are to our friends for that reason. When we feel threatened, whether because someone really close to us is struggling or especially when we're struggling, what happens is our our first instinctual response is to go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And so fight, we fight the problem. 
Uh, however, the problem is ourselves, especially because we failed or done something wrong. We fight ourselves. We criticize ourselves, thinking that somehow we'll be able to control the situation and not have this problem anymore so we'll be safe. Or um, we, like, flee and shame that feeling, like, with this, that feeling of wanting to just withdraw from the world. That's actually a natural response. You know, as biological organisms, we try to withdraw and, and run away from the problem, or else we freeze. We get stuck in rumination. We can't let go. We get kind of obsessed about things. And these are really all ways we try to feel safe. We shouldn't judge ourselves for judging ourselves, right? We do it naturally because we just want to feel safe, and that's, that's completely understandable. So, what, so, and, and that's the first system that comes online is the fight, flight, or freeze response. It's kind of the reptilian brain. But the great thing is we aren't just reptiles. We're also mammals. And mammals, and especially human mammals, have we have a second safety system, which is the care response, right? So this is the system that that um, makes infants want to be near their parents to stay safe, and that drives parents to want to take care of their children. And you know, the, the caregiving system is linked to um, feelings of uh, safety, uh, getting your needs met. It's associated with oxytocin release. Um, uh, so it's kind of the feel-good hormones. And so what we're doing with self-compassion is we're just switching our habitual response, which is fight, flight, or, or freeze, to the care response. It's actually easier to do that with our friends because we aren't threatened. We just naturally use the care response when our friends are struggling. But with us, it takes a little extra effort. We need to be aware. Oh, I see. I'm struggling. Oh, yeah. What do I need? Oh, I need to care for myself. And then we can ask ourselves how to do it. Well, there's a third element, um, and at first when I was kind of trying to define what self-compassion is, I didn't realize at first it had to be here. But very important is that um, with compassion, we, by definition, we need a sense of uh, connection, of, of shared humanity in our suffering. The, the Latin word compassion, suffer with, passion, suffer, come with. So there's, there's a shared nature in the suffering. We, we need to realize that everyone's imperfect, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone struggles, right? It's not just me. But we forget that. You know, in the moment, we feel like, irrationally, we feel like everyone else is living this uh, normal, perfect life, and it's just me who said that embarrassing thing, or just me who you know, got that diagnosis from the doctor or whatever it is. And that, that it has the, the two things. Either it can make us feel really isolated and alone in our suffering, which just makes it a lot harder, or sometimes it can lead to feelings of self-pity, you know, Poor me. And self-pity is not helpful because, again, it kind of, when we're lost in self-pity, we kind of wallow in our pain. And we have no perspective to be able to say, hey, this is part of life. You know, what are the next steps I can take? So really, from my point of view, all three elements need to be there in order for it to be a healthy state of mind, which is self-compassion, mindfulness, kindness, and the sense of common humanity. That's a great place to start. And I want to dive deep into each one of those. But first, I want to talk about why for a lot of people, what they're currently doing is not working. And somewhere in the back of their head, they know this. But, yeah, you know, I, I just want to voice those things because, you know, a lot of self-compassion is replaced with self-criticism. Like that's usually yeah. where we start. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. we're just very hard on ourselves. And the irony is that many of us think that self-criticism is actually really helpful to us, that it's making us work harder, but it's That's not helping, right. right? 
Yeah, so there are actually uh, kind of five main myths about self-compassion. They're really blocks that get in people's way of being more self-compassionate. And what's great now is we have a ton of research that shows these are myths. They aren't true. Actually, usually the opposite is true from the fear. But one actually is just the confusion between self-compassion and self-pity. People think being kind to yourself is like wallowing in self-pity. It's not because it's a connected stance. You realize if this is everyone. It's not just me. If it were self-pity, it would be a fault, but it's not. So people understand that, right? So self-compassion, believe it or not, has less focus on the self. Shame and self-criticism, if you think about it, they're incredibly self-focused states. When you are lost in shame and self-criticism, at, at that moment, you're really self-absorbed. So just saying that, hey, everyone makes mistakes, everyone struggles, you're actually reducing the sense of separate self. But that's a misconception there. Um, another big one is people think self-compassion is weak. They think that, you know, that, that it's going to make them weak unless they're really tough on themselves, hard on themselves. You know, it's going to make them somehow vulnerable, right, if they're, if they're kind to themselves. And um, it's actually, again, just the opposite, that self-criticism weakens you. Self-compassion strengthens you. And actually, some of the, one of the reasons we do this, you know, and interesting with your, with your husband, um, we're finding this out in research. We did a study of um, veterans who had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and, and seen um, combat, right? And they did a study to see which were the veterans who developed PTSD or not, you know, it's complex and there's a lot of factors, but they found that one of the biggest protective factors was self-compassion. Those soldiers who are able to be kind to themselves, kind of understand, you know, things happen, you know, it's not just me, they didn't beat themselves up and they were supportive to themselves, they were less likely to develop PTSD, which is actually one of the reasons that's being taught in the VA, whereas people who are soldiers who are really hard on themselves we're more likely to develop PTSD. And if you think about it logically, right, whether it's an actual battle like our soldiers face or just the battle of life, you know, there's, there's many ways in which life is a battle other than actual combat. When you go into battle, who do you want inside your head? Do you want an ally or do you want an enemy, right? So self-criticism, it's like having, it's like going in battle with an enemy at your side, cutting you down, you know, calling you names, you know, being hard on yourself, making it harder for you, making you anxious, um, you know, making you doubt yourself. Whereas self-compassion is an ally. It's like having your allies, your, your combat buddies with you on your side saying, you can do it. I'm here for you. I support you. I'm going to be warm. I'm going to be kind. I'm friendly. Clearly, you're going to be stronger having allies at your side than having an enemy in your head. And again, you know, the research shows whatever you're looking at, whether it's physical combat, whether it's going through a divorce, whether it's raising a special needs kid, uh, dealing with cancer, people who are supportive and kind and warm and encouraging with themselves are stronger and more resilient. They've got more grit. They're more able to get through the tough stuff. And people who are who are mean to themselves, you know. Again, it's like kind of a no-brainer when you when you unpack it. But we have this we have this idea that self-compassion is going to make us weak. Um, another huge one. This is actually the number one block to self-compassion. Is people think it'll undermine their motivation, they'll lose their edge, so they got to drive themselves on with the whip. You know, you know that's not good enough. It's not good enough, and you aren't good enough, and you know, whatever. So what do we know with the research about that? That 
Well, first of all, I have to say self-criticism kind of works, right? People want to use it. If it didn't kind of work, a lot of people get into, you know, they get to be doctors and lawyers and get into grad school because of self-criticism. But it has a lot of um, negative unintended consequences, right? So for one thing, self-criticism um, can make you anxious, right? If, if you know that if you fail this, you're going to beat yourself up and slam yourself with shame and, you know, <laughs> mean words or just really a lot of negative affect. It's going to create anxiety. And performance anxiety actually undermines your ability to perform at your best. Um, it creates fear of failure, right? One of the biggest stops to motivation, one of the things, the biggest things that gets in the way of achieving your goals is being afraid to try. Because sometimes it's just too scary to try because, you know, if you try and you fail, it won't be okay. The self-compassionate people, they're less afraid of failure. It's okay to fail. Um, they've got less anxiety about it. And then when they do fail, here's the big thing. When they do fail, they can, like, accept the fact that they fail. Everyone fails. They can turn toward what happens. What can I learn from this? If, if everyone fails, it's part of being human. Okay, what can I learn from this? And they're more likely to try again and to keep trying when the going gets tough. So, again, we know this from a lot of research studies now, that being self-compassionate improves motivation. Self-criticism in the long term actually undermines it by this fear of failure and anxiety. Um, you know, and so, but, but people, our, our culture hasn't really caught on. It's starting to, trying as hard as we can to change it. <laughs> the culture hasn't caught on yet, you know, and still has all these myths about self-compassion. But, you know, it used to be that way with our kids. Thank, thank goodness things have moved on, but it wasn't that long ago that the accepted parenting philosophy was spare the rod and spoil the child. We really thought you needed harsh corporal punishment. Even if you didn't want to, you had to to keep the child in line. Otherwise, they'll be spoiled and have all these negative outcomes. And now we know, of course, if you're really, you know, if you're physically abusive to your child, you you know, you harm them in all sorts of ways. It has negative effects through their whole life. But we just didn't understand that. Um, and now we have a lot better understanding of what good parenting looks like. I mean, having high, you know, you have high expectations. You have boundaries with your kids, but you're also warm and supportive. The exact same thing with ourselves. We have boundaries. We have, you know, we don't let ourselves do things that are harmful, but we're warm and we're kind and we encourage productive change as opposed to saying, if you don't change, I'm going to hate you, you know, <laughs> how long does that work with your kids either? So Not great. I, I think that the conversation is changing. It's just, it's just taking a while, but we'll get there. Jason, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but this is an important backstory. Several years ago, I outsourced all fashion decisions to my little sister, Nikki. She's 13 years younger than me, but understands everything that's going on in fashion. And I've just learned to not buy anything without her approval or decision-making ability. It's funny how this works because uh, I don't buy anything without you looking at it. <laughs> well, I'm sorry you get me, but I have Nikki. That's okay. <laughs> Nikki has taught you quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. She helps me with all decisions. But when I got my movement watch, um, it was the proudest I've ever felt because Nikki saw my watch and she gave me this look of approval that I had finally made a decision that was a good one and she approved of. And at the time she was wearing her movement watch and it just made me feel so good about the decision I had made. It is a big deal because much of what you wear is what I call a hand-me-up from your little sister. Yeah, most people, <laughs> most in most families, it works the other direction. But a lot of my clothes, <laughs> uh, I get first dibs before it goes on to Goodwill donations. 
Movement watches start at just $95. You're looking at $400 for the same quality from a traditional brand. They have sold almost 2 million watches in over 160 countries. I'll tell you what I really like about it is that Diana treats it as like uh, the date night watch, uh-huh. which I like because it means she doesn't spend like all of dinner looking at emails and text messages on her watch. No, just so I could, I could focus on the date. Yeah, and the time because it provides time. <laughs> Get 50% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash Diana. Movement's launching new styles on their site all the time. So check out the latest at MVMT, that's movement without the vowels.com. Go to MVMT.com slash Diana to join the movement. So the other thing that people try besides self-criticism is they try self-esteem. Pretty much everything yes. before they get to self-compassion. So <laughs> Self-esteem is like telling yourself that you're strong enough, you're good enough. Why does this not work? Yeah, so um, there's nothing wrong with self-esteem in and of itself. It's good to have a sense of self-worth and value yourself. In some ways, self-compassion is a source of self-esteem, a source of self-worth. But self-esteem is typically based on judgments of worth, right? So so self-compassion is worthy just because you're a human being and I care about you. It's kind of unconditional. Self-esteem is a rating. You know, how good did I do, first of all, compared to others? One of the biggest sources of self-esteem is, uh, am I special and above average, right? And it's not okay to be average. So one of the problems with that is a uh, logical impossibility. <laughs> think about that. We predicate our self-esteem on a logical impossibility because it's impossible for everyone to be above average. And, all, and you know, maybe there's some things were above average, some things were average, some things were below average, kind of by definition. Um, so this need to feel special and above average leads to um, social comparison. We're always kind of like, you know, wanting to subtly put other people down so we can feel better about ourselves. Um, that's we know from research. That's why bullying starts. Why do kids start to bully and pick on other kids? Usually, um, early adolescence, they don't have a lot to go on for their self worth. So maybe if they're the strong, cool kid who successfully picks on the nerdy, you know, weak kid, I'll get a self esteem boost. You know, and, and that's a problem. And sometimes the bullying behavior just kind of continues um, into adulthood in more subtle forms. Uh, Prejudice, right? Uh, prejudice is complicated. It's also to do with structural power. I don't want to reduce it to self-esteem. But at least one element of prejudice is wanting to feel better about myself by feeling that my ethnic, religious, or racial group, whatever it is, gender, is somehow better than yours, right? So, so this social comparison can really undermine cooperation, the sense of community. Um, that's a problem. Uh, the other big problem with self-esteem is that it tends to be contingent. In other words, I have self-esteem when I succeed, and I lose self-esteem when I fail. Now, now think about this. When you fail, when you don't succeed, that's precisely when you need to fall back on the sense of self-worth. But self-esteem is a fair-weather friend because it deserts us when we need it most. You know, if, if someone else is prettier or more successful or, you know, you fail on that exam or you don't get that job or whatever it is, you're angry for when you fail you lose your sense of self-worth. So whereas self-compassion, on the other hand, steps in precisely when self-esteem deserts us, and that's when we, we feel like a failure or, you know, we didn't succeed, then we can say, it's okay, it's human, you know, I love you anyway, let's try again. 
So, so really, you might say that self-compassion is a more healthy source of self-esteem, of self, uh, unconditional self-worth, whereas just judging ourselves positively, you know, sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. That's life. And you cited research that shows that the more your self-worth depends on success in a particular life area, the more miserable you're going to be when you're not good at it. And, and you're always yeah. going to fail at some point. And you get used to those highs, so you need more and more to get the same fix. That's why you're going to fail, because you can never keep upping that ante. Right, right. Yeah, so you can never really have enough self-esteem. I mean, at some point, uh, one, one thing I like to say about self-compassion, a saying a teacher says is, the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate man. Think about that. If that's your goal. To be a compassionate mess. That is actually an achievable goal. Now, you know, not yes. saying that you don't want to succeed. Of course you do, because you care about yourself. But if your goal is just to treat whatever arises with compassion and kindness, and that's actually what you start to value, you actually start to value the love. You start to value that sense of connectedness, the peace that comes, of self-acceptance. Then, then that actually is an achievable goal. And ironically, when you do that, makes you more able to achieve your goals because you're, you're operating from the um, kind of ultimately uh, a supportive emotional environment, right? You have that ally inside your head. But the, the nice thing is the bottom line is if you fail, that's okay. And that's an incredible sense of safety, which actually allows you, makes you again, makes you more likely to achieve your goals. It's kind of a paradox. But yeah, so, so for instance, positive affirmations. If you already have high self-esteem, they find positive affirmations can kind of help pump you up. But if you don't believe it, if you have kind of low self-esteem or, again, you kind of feel like an imposter or you're not really sure, positive affirmations actually make you feel worse about yourself. They backfire. I feel like there's so much more anxiety in society these days, and maybe it's coming from self-esteem. I don't know. I, th I think it's um, adding to it, this need to be perfect. I mean, we really have an epidemic of perfectionism. You know, it's, it's the, student, the students in my class who come to me to my office hours are the ones who are afraid of getting an A-. You know, it's not okay to get an A-. minus. I need to get an A. And the pressure and the stress this causes, it, it's really, um, really damaging, you know. Um, and, and again, that's why I like to frame these questions uh, in terms of, well, what's the best way to motivate your friend that you love or your child that you love? We know best ways to say, hey, I love you unconditionally. If you fail, I'll still be here. I won't abandon you. I, I want you to reach your goals because I care about you and I want you to be happy. But if you don't, that's okay too, right? We know that. That's what we say to our kids, right? We don't say you, well, hopefully we don't say you're no good for nothing loser. I'm ashamed of you. I mean, to try to motivate your child, how well is that going to work? And yet we do it with ourselves. So, you know, part of what self-compassion is, and that's why this common humanity piece is so important, is we kind of do some perspective taking with ourselves. We start to treat ourselves like we treat other people we care about. And that allows us, A, to have a little more distance from our emotions. So we're not so lost in them. We can kind of say, you know, look, step outside of ourselves and say, wow, you're really having a hard time. How can I help you in this moment? What do you need? And we can actually try to give it to ourselves. One of the interesting things you write about, I mean, you do so much research on this topic, is the chemical things that are happening in our body when we're kind to ourselves versus critical to yeah. ourselves. So can you kind of share uh, yeah. some of that research? 
Yeah. Um, and so I'll give you the simple storyline with anything like it's a little more complex than reality. But the simple storyline is we basically have two types of nervous system reaction, right? And I was kind of alluding to that before. So our, our sympathetic response is kind of the fight, flight, or freeze response when we, when we feel threatened. We release um, a, a cortisol, adrenaline, our amygdala gets triggered, right? And we know that a lot of cortisol um, releasing in our system, what happens eventually is it can lead to um, uh, either an anxiety disorder or depression, like the, the system shuts down in response to all the, the cortisol being released. Um, and it can actually be harmful to us physically, you know, leading to the stress response and all that, like literally physical illnesses that come from being stressed all the time, from feeling in that constant fight, flight, or freeze mode. Um, and that, so, and self-criticism is a way, like I said, we're trying to feel safe. We, you know, it's like this is natural, but we're trying to feel safe by controlling the situation, by fighting the problem, by fighting ourselves. It actually undermines our health. So what self-compassion does, the care system, it's called um, the parasympathetic nervous response. So it's linked to, like I said, things like um, oxytocin, um, uh, increased heart rate variability. So our heart, our, we're actually, our heart actually, the, the rhythm of it changes so that we're able to more flexibly respond to challenges that come our way. So it activates that system. So again, it's it's really important to realize that these are two ways we're trying to feel safe. And of course we want to feel safe. We're human beings. We want to be safe. You know, we're, we're living organisms. We want to stay safe. But they're, um, and, and by the way, sometimes you need that really good threat. If like a dog jumps out and chasing you, you want to be able to either fight that dog or run like hell or like play dead, you know. So we need it. But we only need it occasionally, and we really only need it when there are actual physical threats to our, our body. The problem is, is, because as human beings, we confuse our physical reality with our self-concept. We're still threatened all the time. You see a woman who maybe looks where you want to look, and you say you don't look as good. You act as if like a lion is chasing you. Your body reacts <laughs> with the same stress response as if a lion was chasing you. And that's not what the system is designed for, and that's what leads to problems. Um, so the other way to feel safe, let's say you see that woman or whatever has whatever features you want, is yeah, everyone you know, kind of like she's a human being. I'm sure she's got her problems, and she's got strengths. She's got weaknesses. I have strengths. I have weaknesses. You know, I don't need to look like that to be worthy. You know, I, I can love myself as I am. I can accept myself as I am. You know, that it's not about me compared to her. We're just all in this together. You know, we're all doing the best we can. We're all these, like, compassionate messes just trying to trying to stay safe. And, and you know, my happiness can come from just being the best me I can be. It doesn't have to really re- even compare to other people at all. Um, and so once you make that shift, then your sense of safety comes from something much more stable. Uh, and, and we know health-wise, this is kind of a new area of research, but it's looking like, I actually just read a meta-analysis, it's looking like people who are more self-compassionate also have better physical health. And their immune systems function a bit better. They've got longer telomeres. <laughs> One study showed, which is like predicts lifespan. So this is the best diet people can, can start on. Yeah, really. I mean, it was so, but it's not like self-compassion. It's an amazing thing. I mean, there, there's other important things as well, like being grateful and savoring. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of good qualities to cultivate. But I think self-compassion 
the reason I think it's a great place to start is because self-compassion is directly aimed at suffering by definition, right? And so, and that's, that's what derails us when things go, you know, when things happen, when we fail or uh, when we feel insecure or something really scary happens. That's precisely when we need the most support and self-compassion is there for us. Some people call self-compassion, they, they talk about self-compassion almost as a way of um, reparenting ourselves, right? So an ideal parent meets our needs makes us feel unconditionally loved, motivates us with kindness and encouragement, supports us. Um, many of us didn't have those ideal parents. And so what we can do is we can learn to kind of be the ideal parent for ourselves. You know, meet our own needs, give ourselves warmth, give ourselves encouragement, unconditional support. Um, you know, again, like motivating us to change when we need to, but also sometimes just saying, hey, I unconditionally accept you as you are. And uh, having that kind of unconditionally supportive parent in your head can lead to, uh, you can actually change your attachment style, can lead to better relationships. There's really all sorts of benefits that come from, um, from adopting this stance towards yourself. And understand that it's not just yourself going through this. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. It's not just, it's not just us. And it's so funny that we, we tend to think that. Again, it's not logical. But in the moment, we think something has gone wrong. Like, this isn't supposed to be happening. And then, you know, what they say in evolutionary biology is a lone monkey is a dead monkey, right? As a species, being alone and cut off from the group was a death sentence, right? We can't survive alone. This is the way our, the way our species is designed, right? We need other people to survive. And so emotionally, if you feel all alone in your failure, or you feel just me going through this, you feel like everyone else is, is happy and it's just me with this problem, that actually greatly exacerbates how difficult the situation is. Because not only are we suffering, we feel all alone in our suffering. And that, that feeling of being alone also is very scary, you know. And so when we remember, hey, this, you know, we're human. This is what it means to be human. This is it's just part of life. Everyone feels this. It's okay. Of course I feel this way, you know. Um, and I, I will try my best to do what I can to help change the situation. But, you know, I can't control it. This, this, again, this kind of this full acceptance of the human mess, but with compassion. And it, what, what can actually happen is even in, when something painful is happening, you, you learn to start resting your awareness in the love holding the pain, right? The pain is still there, but you like, you like wrap your pain in this warm, loving embrace kind of emotionally, like, oh, it's so hard, and like this kind of warmth and kindness, just like you would hug your crying child who fell down and scraped their knee, you know? You, you learn to really, um, again, like I say, just it's almost like you, I mean, rest your awareness. It's such a, I know it sounds like a maybe strange term unless you meditate, but that's what you do. You focus primarily on the love holding the pain, and the love is actually a positive emotion. It makes us feel connected. It, it gives us this warmth. Again, it activates our parasympathetic nervous system, and that's why it's such a really powerful coping resource. Um, and, and if the word love doesn't work for you, if that's too mushy, use some other word like buddy or friend or you know whatever warmth. But it, it's the good stuff. It's, it's what makes us um, happy and healthy as human beings. We can give it to ourselves even in the worst of times. That's the amazing thing. 
So one of the more interesting things that happened when my husband made his announcement that he was taking oh. a sabbatical to deal with his PTSD, it was kind of a public announcement. And we got wow. thousands of letters from individuals wow. telling us about their own struggles with mental health, yeah. with trauma, with suicide and thoughts, thousands of letters. And many of these wow. letters came from people that we knew really well, like people we hang out with all the time. And they're like, wow. oh, yeah, we have a mental health issue. We've had an attempted suicide. And that was such a big deal for us to understand. I can literally walk into any room and know that half the people in that room have some kind of mental issue that they're struggling with in their family. Yes, absolutely. And it's such an illusion that the, the, the normality is perfect or healthy. It's actually not normality is suffering. That's what it means to be human. And it's suffering and joy. It's both. Right, it's both the human experience. There's any person we see on the street has had moments of joy, of wonder, of love, of happiness, and had moments of terror and sadness and, and, and you know fear. And and, and and I like to say it's not to say that all suffering is equal. I mean, there are differences, right? Um, you know, people of color suffer in some ways more than people who are well privileged. Um, I think women suffer in some ways that men don't. Uh, people with trauma histories, with abusive parents, suffer than people who grew up with good parents. There are differences in level of suffering, and we don't want to say that everyone's the same. That's not true, and we need to like, be sensitive to that fact. Um, at the same time, the fact that there is suffering is a universal. They might say the flavor and amount of suffering varies, but suffering is a universal. And so when we remember that, it's not like anything abnormal when I suffer. Suffering is a universal. Then we don't fight the suffering so much. We just, okay, well, then how can I learn to support myself? And it's not like something has gone wrong. This is the way life is. And then, and then once you kind of accept yourself and give yourself the kindness, then you actually have more resources to make a change. Support for a professional AF comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Just choose a template that you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. So to me, this is really cool because building a website is sort of like in the category for me where I put people who can play an instrument, people who can do <laughs> math really well. It's like they know magic. And this is like a magician saying, you too can do magic. Didn't you say you didn't know how to copy paste last week? I did, and some people thought that I was serious. <laughs> I want to be clear. I, I do. It's like control C, control V. I know how to. It was. It wasn't a good joke, but it was. I know how to do copy and paste. But not design a website. I do not know how to design. With a hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story on Wix.com exactly the way that you want. You want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Oh. You can create an event. Which I would not have known how to do <laughs> without the magic people at Wix. Share everything and a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. What kind of event should we have <laughs> now that we have Wix? Maybe a birthday party. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. Create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash professional AF. The whole name of the show to get 10% off. That's Wix.com slash professional AF. 
Professional AF is brought to you by Swell Investing. I love talking about Swell Investing with you, Jason, because it always comes with some hot investing tips. Well, I remember back in college when I took economics, and ever since I've been trying to figure out on the NASDAQ what the symbol is for widgets. Because (laughs) widgets, I mean, widgets are like, they don't go away. They have inelastic demand like forever, I think. Uh It turns out that one in every $10 invested in the S&P outside of widgets goes towards fossil fuels, tobacco, and firearms. Probably widgets too. I I don't know. (laughs) Meanwhile, a whole lot of retirement accounts are supporting a whole lot of backwards industries. And if we're into the idea of creating the world that we want to live in someday, it's probably a good idea to make a change there. Swell is an impact investing platform that builds portfolios of stocks from high growth companies working towards progress. The premise? Help investors, both new and experienced, better understand where their money goes and how it grows. With Swell, you choose how every dollar is invested and where you want your money to have impact. From renewable energy to disease eradication to clean water. Or do like me, put it all in pork belly futures. Because because you watch trading places. It was a while ago, but yeah, I think that was was like the main takeaway. Better still, stocks of companies with high environmental and social impact have actually beaten the S&P 500 for the past 25 years. That's making money. That's making a difference. Actually, I think maybe it was orange juice that they invested in. (laughs) Visit swellinvesting.com slash Diana to start investing with your values in mind. Do it today for a $50 bonus when you open an account. Swell, invest in progress. Okay, well, question about our common humanity. So you talk a lot about the us versus them mentality, and that's a, an unhealthy one. Yeah. But does that mean that being competitive is bad, that trying to be the best at something is just inherently dangerous? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think there's, there's can be healthy competition, right? And so, what, so um, a healthy form of competition would be, I want to be the best I possibly can be because I care about myself. You know, and that if the best I can possibly be is, you know, maybe someone else, their best is a little better. Maybe it's a little less better. But if you just focus on yourself, reaching your goals, then you can you can absolutely try as hard as you possibly can to to reach your best goals. For instance, we know that the standards of self-compassionate people are just as high as everyone else's. It's not at all linked to how high your standards are. The big difference is what happens when you don't reach your goal. That's that's the, the you know the million dollar question. You try your best, keep trying, and when you don't reach your goal, do you say hate yourself? I'm a loser. I hang your head in shame. Criticize yourself. Judge yourself. It's actually going to undermine your ability to achieve your goals. Or do you say what can I learn from this? You know, hey, it's it's okay. The bottom line. It's, it's okay. I love myself as I am, but I want to, because I want to be happy. I want to reach my goals. How can I help and support and encourage myself? So it's kind of like, you know, um, it's not so dependent on other people's success level, right? It, it's kind of, you just try to, to, to do your very best. Um, and that's really all you can control anyway. And the bottom line is it's okay if you aren't able to achieve your dreams as long as you just try your best, you know? Does that make sense? You can get you can get new dreams instead of just giving up on dreams altogether. 
Yeah, because what happens when people get really, their sense of self-worth is invested in success is when they don't succeed, then they often tend to give up. Um, and then they, you know, or things like they procrastinate or they just drop out or, you know, worst extreme case, they even commit suicide, which is just horrific, you know, instead of just accepting that, okay, maybe, maybe this, maybe I'm, my best isn't what I had hoped it was. And so maybe I can try something else, right? Can I, can I learn to be that compassionate mess, you know, and get my happiness <laughs> from the love? Get, get your happiness from the love, even holding the sense of failure, and you know, and then try again. I mean, because the thing is, you know, people don't want to face this, but the truth is, we are not perfect and we are not in total control. That is just the truth. <laughs> so we either accept that truth or we don't. Okay. The third element of self compassion is mindfulness, which we haven't covered yeah. yet. So, yeah, uh, just to understand that you're having feelings to note them can you explain that yeah so mindfulness is really about presence um, if you if another word for the three components of kindness um, common humanity and uh, mindfulness is loving connected presence so kindness gives us a sense of love the common humanity gets us a sense of connection and mindfulness is really the presence so presence means uh, being it's kind of the, the bravery be with things as they are, to see things as they are. Um, and unfortunately, when what and the way things are when they're unpleasant, <laughs> we don't want to admit that they're that way, and that leads to all sorts of problems, right? So one of the reasons like mindfulness-based stress reduction is, is so, you know, incredibly um, successful around the world is, you know, we know this. We know when we're stuck in traffic, but it doesn't help to scream and rage at the fact that you're stuck in traffic. The more we're able to just realize I'm stuck in traffic, it's really frustrating. And just kind of make space for those feelings, then we aren't so overwhelmed by those feelings, right? So that, that sense of being overwhelmed when we get overwhelmed by things and get super reactive, that usually stems directly from the fact that we aren't able to um, accept the fact that something that we don't like is happening. And so mindfulness, it really gives us the courage to just be with things as they are and to be aware of things as they are. You know, sometimes we don't like to face things. We like, we like to turn our heads, turn away. I don't want to admit that. I don't want to see that. And we know how well that works out, right? Maybe you've had someone in your life and you didn't want to accept something about them and it came back to bite you, you know? So, so really mindfulness is just um, it's, it's seeing the truth. Being at clarity, presence. The other thing that's really useful about mindfulness is most of us, um, we kind of perceive the world just through our thoughts, right? We think about the world as opposed to directly experiencing the world. Well, thoughts have some unusual qualities. First of all, thoughts give us the illusion of permanence, right? This is always going to be this way. That's a thought. That's not reality. Reality is things are always changing. Thoughts give us a sense of past and the future. Um, thoughts kind of can catastrophize things. The reality is usually, um, first of all, life is lived in reality, not in thought. Think about that one. There's a way in which thoughts are kind of dead. You know, you can think all you want about the apple, but you can't eat the thought apple. You can only eat an actual apple. 
And that apple will decay over time. The thought apple never decays. Realizing that things are always changing, kind of directly experiencing the life force energy that flows through your veins as opposed to just kind of being in this mental space where life isn't really. Um, it, it can... Uh, it, it does so many good things for us. It helps us with our health. Um, it helps us be less stressed. It helps us see, see, see things so we can make wiser decisions. Um, and in relevant self-compassion, it helps us when we're suffering to remember, oh, yeah, what I need to do is ask myself, what do I need right now to care for myself? And that's what enables us to give a good, healthy answer. We never even ask the question. We can't give ourselves what we need. Right? So it's really mindfulness is kind of the foundation of everything, the presence, and then the rest is added onto it. Okay, so if somebody thinks, okay, I'll try this self-compassion thing, they get excited yeah. by the interview or the book, yeah. what do you think is the hardest part about getting started? Um, I think the biggest thing is overcoming the misconceptions about it, you know, thinking that it's going to undermine your motivation, it's going to make you selfish, it's going to, you know, mean you're wallowing self-pity or make you self-indulgent. So that's kind of the, the, the biggest block um, to getting there. Once people usually try it out, most people are pretty amazed, like, how helpful it is. It's, just, it's like it's a, it's a small shift, but it's huge. The small shift of instead of being lost in the pain or judging yourself for being imperfect and just saying, hey, how can I support you in the moment? It actually is, it makes a huge shift almost immediately when people try it. So I think the first thing is just getting over these blocks, allowing yourself to try it, giving yourself permission to do it. And then the cool thing about self-compassion is it's not rocket science. You know, we've all, almost all of us, most of us have learned how to do it. For other people, we know what tone of voice to use. We know what encouraging uh, language sounds like, as opposed to harsh, belittling language. We can use touch. Touch is a really effective way to give yourself compassion because, again, you're working directly with the parasympathetic nervous system. As babies, we don't have language. We, we, we communicate with our parents with these, these sense of care through touch only, pretty much touch and tone of voice. So we can use touch, supportive touch warm tone of voice, and supportive language, it's actually not that difficult to do, which is why we're having so much success in training people how to be more self-compassionate. The biggest block is giving yourself permission. So, and, to try you know, it. And, and, you know, and yes, give it a try. Um, and, and so, for, you know, you'll probably link to this on my website. If you, or if you just Google self-compassion, I've got tons of research on there. The research is really useful for helping people get over their skepticism, <laughs> you know, because it, like, it sounds kind of like a new agey idea. <laughs> and then, oh, I see there's 2,000 studies on this. Okay, well, maybe it's not just a new agey idea. Maybe it's empirical science. Okay, that, that kind of gives a sense of safety. And then I've got, like, you can do meditations. If your meditation is your thing, I've got guided meditations or just little practices. You can actually even uh, take a test I've, I've developed to measure your level of self-compassion to see you know, are you high or do you need some help in this area? Um, so it's actually, I've, I've tried to design it as a really good starting place for people. Um, and we also, I, I, I sound really self-promotional here, but it is actually relevant. We developed, an, and my partner and I, Chris Thurmer, my colleague, we developed an eight-week 
training program in self-compassion. But it used to be you'd have to, like, find someone who's in your area who taught it. And it was kind of difficult. But now you can take yourself through the program in workbook format, which is a really uh, made it a lot more accessible to people that maybe didn't have access to the tools we've developed before. So um, I'm really... I'm I'm gonna say I'm really gratified that this is get, yeah it's getting out there the word the word's getting out <laughs> yay and and you have so much research to back up how yes. self compassion makes you a, a, like a better professional a better parent a better husband or wife and then the book yes. and all the tools that you cited make it so accessible that you can just try whatever feels right to start with and then try some other things. Right, exactly. And people are different. You know, different practices work for different people. Um, and so, you know, you can just find what's right for you. Anything else people should know, like it, where they could get hung up or, you know, the, the well, tricky so, parts so of self-compassion? Thing, yeah, so one, one thing, yeah, there is a tricky part. So um, there's a phenomena that happens with self-compassion practice that we call backdraft. And it's good to know about it. So backdraft is actually a firefighting term that most people know. And it refers to the fact that like, if there's a house on fire and all the oxygen inside gets consumed, the firefighters just don't go like swing open the doors to use their fire hoses because what happens is when you swing open the doors of a house on fire, the air, fresh air rushes in and the flames rush out and it can actually be an explosion. And that's called backdraft. It's quite dangerous. So what firefighters do, why do they have those picks with them? What they do is they go around the house and they poke holes in the house to let the air in more slowly so it doesn't have this explosive reaction. Well, believe it or not, this can't happen with ourselves. You can get backdraft from self-compassion practice um, itself. So what's happened is, you know, to get through life, the pain of life, we've closed, we've shut down, we've closed the doors of our heart. We've tried to protect ourselves by kind of numbing ourselves out to these feelings. And then we open the doors of our heart, like the fresh air of love rushes in, and then the pain sometimes rushes out, and it can feel uh, kind of scary and destabilizing. And this is especially true with people early family histories where there was some trauma. You know, what happens is the people who are supposed to make them feel safe and loved and cared for actually didn't. And so there can be a lot of old pain that kind of can bubble up. And so sometimes when people they start to be kind to themselves and it makes them feel the opposite, you know, anxious. It brings up memories or they start to give themselves unconditional love and they think of all the ways they're unlovable or all the ways other people told them they were unlovable. So it's a common phenomena. It's actually an important part of the healing process. And people think, oh, I'm doing it wrong. It actually means you're doing it right. It means you're, you've opened the door of your heart. You're starting to let the fresh air of love in. The pain needs to be released to be healed. But it means you may just have to go slowly. You may have to be like one of those firefighters. It's just kind of, you know, give yourself a little kindness and maybe there's a lot of pain comes out. So you back off a little bit. You go at the pace that's right for you. And eventually, eventually you can start to heal a lot of this pain. Well, Kristen, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been an absolute honor to get to chat with you in person. And I really appreciate all of your work. Can't wait for the next oh, book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. How awesome was Dr. Kristen Neff? I really hope you got at least one thing out of that episode that you can do differently starting today. And it would be a real shame if this powerful experience that you and I just had stopped here. So please make sure that you're subscribed to the show and that you join our private Facebook group. 
It's called Professional AF Podcast Insiders, where we discuss each of the episodes, people just like you sharing their personal stories, us interacting about it. It's quickly becoming an amazing community. And please do me a favor. If you got any value out of this episode, please share and review the show in whatever platform you use to listen. Ratings and reviews help the algorithm discover this podcast and promote it to other people. So it would mean a lot to me if you took the time to write a review for the show. I'm Diana Kander, and I read this great quote this morning from Skillshare, one of our advertisers. The future belongs to the curious, the ones who are not afraid to try it, explore it, poke at it, and question it, and turn it inside out. Remember, curiosity is your superpower. Talk to you soon.